What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Ronan Levy is a pioneer in the medical cannabis and psychedelic industries. He is the co-founder and executive chairman of Field Trip, along with a partner at Grassfed Ventures. In this conversation, we discuss a psychedelics overview, mental health, microdosing, psilocybin, legalization versus decriminalization, and how Field Trip is attacking this industry. I really enjoyed this conversation with Ronan and I learned a ton. I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Tiny. I just recorded another episode with Andrew Wilkinson, and if you listen to it, you'll see why these guys are great. Do you want to sell your wonderful internet business? Tiny partners with founders to give them quick, straightforward exits that protect their team and culture. They'll make an offer within a week, close the deal within a month, and keep your business operating for the long term. Tiny really understands and speaks the language of founders. They make it painless and they buy your company if that's what you're looking for. So go check them out at tinycapital.com. Again, tinycapital.com. You go there, you basically tell them what your business does and tell them what you're looking for and they'll let you know within a couple of days. I can't recommend Andrew and Tiny enough. Go check them out at tinycapital.com. Next up, is Harvested Financial. Markets have had an absolutely wild year, and there's no better way to tame that beast than with options. Harvested Financial has strategies that work for your portfolio, regardless of what's happening with the VIX. You can capture opportunity and manage risk with systematically executed strategies. Many of you who are listening to this have probably never used options before. So what Harvested Financial has built is a robo-advisor for options strategies. Options can help you speculate in capital-efficient ways. You can diversify your holdings with market-neutral strategies. And you can generate passive income by selling premiums. There's a whole bunch to learn, but Harvested Financial is the best way to get onboarded into the options world. Go use the Options Robo Advisor built by Harvested Financial. It's harvestedfinancial.com/pomp. Again, if you've never used options before but you want to learn and you want to get started, go use a robo advisor. They do the hard work for you and help you get up to speed. So go check them out at harvestedfinancial.com/pomp. Again, harvestedfinancial.com/pomp. Lastly is Diginex. Diginex is the first company with a cryptocurrency exchange that is listed in the United States of America. That exchange, which is called Equos, E-Q-U-O-S, Equos, has been built to institutional standards, but it is available to everyone. You can trade Bitcoin and Ethereum spot, as well as Bitcoin perpetuals, and even get a 5% discount on all fees by signing up using Equos.com slash POMP. Again, equos.com slash pomp. Diginex, a cryptocurrency exchange that is now publicly listed on the NASDAQ, their exchange, Equos, is available for everyone with institutional standards. Go check them out, equos.com slash pomp. All right, let's get into this episode with Ronan. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. 
You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got Ronan here. I am super excited to do this. We are going to do a complete deep dive on psychedelics and the psychedelic industry. Thank you so much for doing this, sir. Uh, my pleasure. Happy to happy to chat. For sure. Let's jump right into your background. You've had a very kind of storied uh, entrepreneurial career. Maybe just walk us through kind of what you've done up until this point. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I started my career actually as a lawyer uh, working on Bay Street for uh, those who don't know what that is. It's kind of the Canadian equivalent to Wall Street working at a prestigious firm. Uh, quickly realized that was not the life for me. I was I was once described as being too creative to be a lawyer and, and I take that with a badge of honor. So uh, I was actively involved in various entrepreneurial startups all along uh, and quickly left the private practice of law, working in various businesses as a lawyer until I really got my chops in entrepreneurship. Uh, that was about 2011 when I opened my first business, um, which is in the gold industry. It still operates to this day, actually, uh, but it was never my lifelong ambition to be in the gold industry. So I went back, started working with startups really as a lawyer, uh, but with a view to kind of getting involved on a deeper level. And through those activities, I found my business partners, Joseph and Hanan and, and Ryan, um, in this current business in Field Trip Health, actually. Um, uh, they were looking at doing something in the Canadian medical cannabis industry. This was late 2013. Um, and, and, uh, you know, they were trying to figure something out, but they were a little bit hesitant because of the stigma and just through my path and my career being a lawyer and, and various other activities, I was like, there's no stigma here, guys. This is legal. This is like the greatest opportunity. How often do you get an opportunity where like a multi-billion, if not trillion dollar black market turns overnight into a legal market, you know, how can you miss this? And so after cajoling them for a little while, we all kind of joined forces and, and we started uh, two sister companies, one called Canvas RX, one called Canadian Cannabis Clinics. Uh, the latter grew to the largest network of cannabis specialized medical clinics in Canada. 30 locations have helped well over 100,000 Canadians access the legal medical cannabis system. And Canvas RX, we sold to a company, a fledgling um, cannabis company called Aurora Cannabis Inc. Recently got licensed to produce cannabis, uh, but had big ambitions and, and a really amazing CEO, uh, Terry Booth, whose, whose energy was just boundless. I've never met a guy who worked so hard and, and was so caring and thoughtful at the same time. Uh, and so we joined Aurora, helped Aurora grow from a small CSE listed company with a $65 million market cap. When we left in 2018, it was a $10 billion New York Stock Exchange listed company. Uh, so it was a fun couple of years there. Um, and after we left, we kind of were looking for something new to do. Uh, and that's when we learned about what was happening in psychedelics. We didn't come from a background in cannabis or in psychedelics being like, you know, being super cannabis advocates or being psychonauts or anything along those lines. And I think that's really what has enabled us to excel in both industries as we kind of came in objective, thoughtful, professional, and, and really brought that level of focus and discipline to both industries. And that's kind of helped us to do what we do. Um, so in 2018, uh, we started looking to all the research. We saw that Peter Thiel had just made an investment in a company called Compass Pathways. The magic of LinkedIn enabled us to chat with the CEO. Uh, usually LinkedIn is, is a big waste of time, but uh, in this instance, it actually worked out well for us. You know, we got connected to Rick Doblin. We spoke to Michael Pollan, who had just published How to Change Your Mind, and started learning and became fascinated 
uh, with the science and, and the evidence coming out around psychedelics and, and quickly got to the point where like, holy shit, this stuff is going to be legal way sooner than anybody could imagine. This is coming and it's coming fast. And, you know, what can we do? We had had this amazing experience with cannabis, kind of going in a little bit agnostic to the therapeutic potential of cannabis, but seeing a great business opportunity and then being truly blown away and moved uh, by the impact it had. You know, almost uniformly, all of the physicians who now work at Canadian cannabis clinics refer to cannabis as the most effective medicine they've ever prescribed to their patients in terms of quality of life. And so, you know, we had a, we had a great exit when we sold that business. And, and so we kind of looked at psychedelics as being a really great opportunity to create a new incredible business, but create massive impact. You know, this is kind of the opportunity, um, of the scale of, you know, Elon Musk and SpaceX and what he's trying to do or Jeff Bezos. And, you know, this is massive scale, massive impact opportunity when you look at the evidence around psychedelics. And and so we kind of dug in, learned as much as we could, spent about a year trying to figure out how to build a business in psychedelics, because what are you going to do? All of these are are still scheduled by and large, Uh, crafted our our business plan and, and launched Field Trip about a year and a half ago. And that's kind of the path here. It's awesome. Um, let's start at a very high level. What is a psychedelic, right? Everyone hears that they kind of, it used to be very, very fringe. Now it's less fringe in terms of when people are talking about it, but just from your understanding after having done all that research, what is a psychedelic? Yeah, you know, and there's still ongoing debate as to what is a psychedelic. It's it's not a defined answer. I will tell you how we think about it. We think about a psychedelic as anything that slows the ego or tunes down the ego, slows the default mode network in the brain, which is kind of the the parts of the brain that operate as the operating system that keep you going even when you're not thinking about things. Um, Anything that tunes those down, slows those down, and opens you up to change uh, is what we consider a psychedelic. And so that can be psychedelic drugs um, like LSD or psilocybin, um, or it could be meditation or breath work. If you haven't tried breath work, it is a super cool experience how you could induce an almost trip-like state just, just through different breathing techniques. So to us, any of those are psychedelics and, and because they enable the capacity for change. Uh, but for other people, if you want to get more focused on the chemistry, uh, typically psychedelics refer to molecules uh, that engage the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor in the brain. So that's LSD, um, that's psilocybin, that's DMT, that's 5-MeO-DMT, uh, which are, are known psychedelics, that's peyote, um, just about anything you can sort of think of when you think about the counterculture and hippie movements, those are, are classically uh, psychedelics. MDMA is lumped into that category as well. MDMA is not conventionally a psychedelic in that respect, but it offers very similar experiences and it really does the same thing of slowing the default mode network, tuning down the ego and, and enabling change. So that gets put in the category as well, but it, it is a pretty fluid definition. Absolutely. And so one of the things that's really interesting to me is uh, there's kind of two use cases, I think, that now are presenting themselves. There's like this medicinal type use case, and then there's more of a recreational or wellness type use case. Um, It mirrors, I know you've talked about it before, a lot of what happened uh, so far in the cannabis industry. Maybe talk about that framework and how you think about each one of those use cases developing, whether it's from a legal structure standpoint or from an actual just development of the industry. Sure. So when we got excited about psychedelics, certainly, um, you know, the, the evidence around the treatment of depression and PTSD and anxiety and all of these 
uh, clinically diagnosed mental health conditions was incredibly exciting. You know, that's incredible impact, but it's kind of focused on, and, and it's, it's a, a function of the entire modern Western allopathic medicine approach, uh, which is you focus on what's wrong and try and sort of come back to baseline, right? So people who are sick, you give them medicine and they come back to baseline to be quote unquote normal. But, you know, the, the five guys behind Field Trip, all of us kind of have a little bit of a, we're not super biohackers, but we're always focused on optimization and increasing our creativity and empathy and awareness. And I know I've spent 15 years working with meditation and metaphysics and self-exploration independent of psychedelics, uh, really just trying to have a better life, to be happier, to be a better parent, to be a better partner, all of these things. These are just part of personal growth. And so that was the part of the industry that probably excited us more just personally. And inevitably, when you start a business, usually you build a business to satisfy your own desires. And, and so what we see happening, what, we, what happened in the cannabis industry, as many people know, is that most programs started off as a medical program, which means you needed to go to a doctor, uh, get a diagnosis, you know, whether it's back pain or migraines, or you had HIV AIDS, which is where a lot of the movement started, and you wanted something to help manage the symptoms around that. But you needed a doctor, you needed a diagnosis, and you needed a prescription, and then you can access medical cannabis. And then eventually that evolved to adult use cannabis where people can just buy cannabis like they, they can buy alcohol and, and, and that's fine. And I think, you know, philosophically, the war on drugs never made a whole lot of sense. Uh, so it, it kind of is, is totally rational and coherent that that happened there. In psychedelics, what we see happening is a little bit different. You know, when we looked at the, the evidence and where things were going, we thought it was certainly wonderful that... Um, there was a path through FDA approval and clinical trials to create new medicines using psilocybin and MDMA to treat depression, to treat anxiety, to treat PTSD, certainly. But we always felt that that would be um, a little bit, uh, a, a little bit less than ideal outcome, right? Because psychedelics can help just about everybody. You know, there's certain kind of contraindications where people shouldn't be taking psychedelics, but for most people. Psychedelic experiences can be very illuminating. They can help you process traumas. They can help you be more well, self-sustaining, creative, empathetic, all of these wonderful things. Um, and uh, so what we saw emerging and, and what has now happened with the passage of Measure 109 in Oregon is that two systems are now clearly in place. One is going to be purely medical and these drugs are going through FDA trials, they're phase three programs. Um, and once they get approved, they're going to be prescribable by doctors for the treatment of mental health conditions. Um, and that's great for people who are suffering with these conditions, but for anyone else who's not sick, but could potentially benefit, they get excluded from that program. And so what we saw happen in Oregon and what we expect to see on a state-by-state -state basis, much like we saw with cannabis, is programs that are really accessible to all people. You don't have to be sick. You don't have to have a diagnosis of a mental health condition um, to access it. But what will differ differentiate it a bit from cannabis is that it will be more controlled. It's not going to be that you go to a dispensary and buy mushrooms or, or whatever and take them home. You'll have to go to a licensed facilitator or clinician. You won't have to be sick. You won't have to be depressed, but you'll have to go to a controlled environment uh, and it'll be accessible to anybody who wants to use 
use it. And the great thing about that program is there's greater access. People who can benefit from psychedelics without being sick will have access. Uh, but the benefit of being a, in, within the medical program, uh, if you want to talk about it in terms of benefits, is that there'll be insurance coverage, right? These will be FDA approved drugs. They'll have indications. And if you fit that indication and you get a prescription and you want to seek treatment, there'll be a lot more robust insurance coverage. So it won't be as expensive. But we think both of those are going to emerge. And, and that's great because the sick will have better access to programs. Uh, the people with mental health will have better access and lower cost access to programs, but the people who don't need it, but want it, uh, will be able to access it as well. Talk to me a little bit about the science and kind of how far um, along the industry is. So you know, before, in preparation for this, I read a whole bunch of different things. Uh, and it seems like there are now many, many studies that are starting to show the efficacy, uh, whether it is for PTSD, whether it is for other mental trauma. Um, it just seems like now we're, we're getting close, if not already to this point where like the evidence is overwhelmingly positive that like this works, uh, specifically around the medicinal side. How do you guys view that scientific data and some of the studies that have already been done? I mean, I think it's essential. And I think the reason that the psychedelic renaissance is happening so rapidly, especially as you compare it to cannabis, is because that evidence is so robust and so persuasive. You know, you look at this movement really started about 20 years ago when ketamine, uh, which is a legal and prescribable drug in, in most countries around the world as an anesthetic, um, was shown to have very positive effects on the treatment of depression, so much so that uh, Dr. Tom Insel, uh, he used to be the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, that it said it was the most important breakthrough in the treatment of depression in 50 years or something along those lines. And, and that sort of kicked off this interest in psychoactive drugs. Um, uh, for the treatment of mental health. And then probably 10 to 15 years ago, you had some very enterprising uh, researchers from Johns Hopkins and Imperial College in, in, in London uh, who started looking at psilocybin again for the treatment of mental health conditions. Now, what's really interesting is, you know, you, I don't know how old you are, but we probably had very similar high school experiences where we were taught about like how terrible drugs are, this is your brain on drugs and all that kind of stuff. But the history of, of most psychedelics actually starts in either cultural, spiritual uses or in the modern Western context in research. You know, this was Harvard University in the late 50s and early 60s advancing the research on LSD for mental health conditions, which showed profound, profoundly positive results. But the LSD kind of left the lab and, and went into the mainstream, the counterculture, and you had the whole political backlash. So the researchers who picked it up in the last 15 years or so were really working off a base of evidence and that evidence shows incredible efficacy. You know, when you look at psilocybin, um, for the treatment of depression, you know, there's a study that came out uh, from NYU a couple months ago that showed that a single psilocybin assisted therapy session, and, and it's important to note that when we talk about psychedelic therapies, it's really the interplay of the drug with the therapy. It's not just given the drug, like we think of, antidepressants or antibiotics or anything along those lines. It's really the interplay, but there's a study out of NYU that showed uh, a single psilocybin assisted therapy session could provide antidepressant effects for up to five years, one session, five years. You know, when you compare that to antidepressants, which you have to take every day, this is like, it, it's almost crazy uh, that we would be considering 
using antidepressants going forward, or you look at the studies with MDMA uh, and an organization, a nonprofit called MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which has been doing this for 30 years. Um, you know, God, God bless Rick for his discipline and, and, and drive to see this through after all that time. You know, in their phase two clinical study, FDA approved clinical study, uh, they showed that close to 70% of people with chronic severe PTSD were no longer categorized as having PTSD anymore. You know, you're talking about an effective cure of PTSD and some of the most rigorous and robust clinical trials you can, you can imagine. Uh, and it, it, it's across the spectrum, you know, with anxiety, you see similar results. Uh, we'll be hosting a, a trial looking at MDMA, um, for the treatment of anorexia at some point. So any mental health conditions. And, and the amazing thing is that these molecules are incredibly safe by and large. You know, they're, they're non-addictive, may even be anti-addictive when you talk about psilocybin or LSD. Uh, the results speak for themselves. And they also have these pro-social side effects, right? You know, people not only report that they have significantly improved depression or anxiety. They also report that, you know, they have increased creativity, increased empathy, more openness to other people's viewpoints, which is something that seems sorely lacking uh, around the world these days. Um, uh, as well as like greater connection to nature and the planet. So not only are they being cured, they're actually, their lives are being improved over and above treatment of their conditions. So the research isn't, is quite profound. The safety profile of these molecules is pretty well established. Um, and uh, it's just growing, you know, there's a few major studies that have been given breakthrough therapy status by the FDA, which means not only has the FDA decided that, you know, these show incredible promise, but they meet an urgent need, you know, it, it really is quite the, the platform that we're working from from with a lot of research and, and support behind it. Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting to me is uh, you shared the kind of this chart around the harmfulness of various drugs and things like MDMA, LSD, you know, other types of psychedelics are some of the least harmful drugs you can put in your body, right? If you compare that, you know, to alcohol or, or, or whatever it is. And so, it almost begs the question of like, whether it's through medicinal or recreational purposes, what's the downside of this, right? So, so it's kind of, was it just a side effect of the war on drugs and this got lumped in with everything and, and therefore uh, kind of it took a detour, if you will, for a couple of decades uh, and, and was deemed, you know, illegal and, and bad because the government said so? Uh, or are there other things that um, you guys kind of look at and say, look, we know that there are specific side effects that uh, could be negative, but the positives outweigh those negatives? Yeah, I mean, with any drugs, there's always going to, with anything, you know, too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. And, and that's certainly true with all drugs and, and as well as psychedelics. But I think you hit on the key point, which is the benefits, particularly with psychedelics, far outweigh the downsides. You know, the, the biggest risks around psychedelics, by and large, you know, most are anti-addictive or non-addictive. So you're not going to get hooked on them like you could with other drugs like cocaine or heroin, um, if, if we're talking about illicit drugs. Um, there's with psilocybin and LSD, at least there's no LD50, which means you really can't overdose uh, to the point of death. You know, there was a, a, a study, it was an N of one, uh, but a woman took something like 10,000 micrograms of LSD, which is like 40 times a significant dose of LSD. Uh, and she was sick for a couple of days, um, but it seemed to cure her bipolar disorder and she was fine afterwards. So, you know, it's, it's, you're not going to die on these. 
um, by and large. Uh, so, you know, they're relatively safe in that regard. The biggest risk is there's two risks around psychedelics. The biggest risk is people having bad trips. You know, we probably heard all of the urban legends of someone having a trip and launching themselves off a building. And the truth is that has happened, but not with the frequency uh, by which, you know, we may have learned in, in high school. Um, but bad trips, you know, the, the current belief is that there's no such thing as a bad trip. There are hard trips and there are easy trips. A hard trip can still be incredibly therapeutic when supported by the right therapy. Um, but if it doesn't have the right container around it, it can turn into a bad trip. And a bad trip, much like a nightmare, can create its own instance of PTSD. So there are potentials for negatives, but generally the risk is relatively low. It's not zero, um, but the risk is relatively low. And especially with the right supporting context, it's, it's much lower. Um, and that's about it. There's also reports of uh, a condition where people have taken a psychedelic and like the experience takes a long time to go away. I forget exactly what the acronym is, but it's essentially a persistent trip that lasts for a long time. And that does happen in rare instances as well, but it does seem to subside after some period of time, but that can also be uh, probably very unpleasant for those people who experience it. Um, outside of that though, the, the risks are fairly minimal uh, and, and the upsides are obviously quite significant. Absolutely. I'm assuming that you've taken the psychedelics and, and kind of experienced this for yourself. And so can you maybe describe to people what, the actual experiences, right? I think people hear the psychedelic, um, you know, they read about it, but if you've never actually taken them, is it something where you can attribute it to like being drunk? Is it more like, you know, being high on marijuana? Is it like cocaine? Is it something completely different? Like how, how would you describe the actual experience? Um, it really depends. I mean, I haven't tried all psychedelics, so I can't speak from personal experience on all of them, but, um, you know, it, uh, if, if I was going to speak to psilocybin, which is where my personal experience is, and, and I talk about it quite extensively actually on our podcast, which is called Field Tripping, um, the, the experience is kind of like, it's a little bit like cannabis, you know, you kind of feel the voices in your head, all of the thoughts kind of slow down a little bit. And so you become more aware of what's going on around you, depending on the drug that can also come through in very colorful expressions. You know, they've, they've taken people who are, have, who are on psilocybin and put them in an fMRI machine to see what's happening in the brain. And what they've found is that when you're on a psychedelic, parts of your brain that typically don't talk to each other, you're talking to each other quite frequently. So that's why people experience a much more robust sense of the world, right? They can feel music more, they can taste music more, or art is more colorful. And, and there's actually a, a neurological reason for it is that the parts of your brain are talking to each other more. So your experience is actually more integrated. Um, and so on psilocybin, you know, you kind of feel like a little bit of spaciness, but you're still coherent. You're still very conscious. You're not uh, reckless, like you're drunk, you know, your judgment is still fairly well intact, but if you close your eyes, you will typically have an incredible uh, visual experience. You know, a lot of the tropes about the 1960s and LSD, a lot of those kind of experiences and those color experiences do happen when you, when you take psilocybin. Um, if you take it and go inward, you know, you'll often experience past moments in your life. You'll be able to see them with a degree of objectivity you've never seen them with before. You'll have creative ideas. You know, a lot of these things are pretty 
comparable to cannabis or, or drinking in some respects, but they land more. They, they're, they, you're easy, it's easier to hold on to them more. They don't just dissipate. They're much more meaningful to you. Um, that's probably how I describe the experience. Uh, I've never taken ketamine personally, but a lot of people talk about ketamine um, uh, and have an experience whereby, you know, they just feel like, you know, they're a little bit in outer space or underwater and can see the world in just a much different way. You know, it's still very much themselves. It's just kind of like uh, being in a little bit of outer space and or an out of body experience as well. It can still be colorful. It can still be very vibrant, but it's a little bit more objective. Um, that's, that's how I would describe it. You know, I think everyone's experiences are personal and then they can definitely go dark. And, um, you know, as a nod to Michael Pollan uh, in his book, how to change your mind, he goes into depth about what his trip experiences were like, uh, when he did LSD and psilocybin, and he's probably much more eloquent and, and poetic about it than I am. So if anyone wants to, you know, get a deeper sense, that'd be a good place to look. Yeah. And, uh, I apologize in advance. I'm probably going to ask a bunch of really naive elementary questions. So uh, no stick with me. Um, the experience you just described is uh, very positive, right? Almost like this uh, thing where you're ingesting something that unblocks a lot of the blockage in your brain. And so you can see that either from a um, kind of internal uh, you know, review, right? And, and it would make sense as to uh, things like PTSD, um, you know, therapies and things like that, that would make a ton of sense because you can actually get somebody to kind of go through that experience, talk through it and things like that. Uh, but also there's this external component. Uh, you just see the world differently. We can kind of sum it up like that. Um, that is in stark contrast to uh, maybe uh, something like an ayahuasca, right? Where people basically describe uh, vomiting and, and diarrhea and kind of a, a much more like cleansing type activity. Uh, does the psychedelic community consider things like ayahuasca to be part of it? Is it kind of, there's a gray area and it just depends where you draw the line. Like, how do you think about something that I think people look at as much more like cleansing the body versus, uh, almost like this, like mental trip that you just described? Yeah, no, ayahuasca is, is certainly part of the psychedelic experience. You know, uh, a lot of people have ayahuasca experiences. Ayahuasca, the active uh, drug in ayahuasca is DMT, which is actually something that our body naturally synthesizes just in very small proportions. But it's thought actually um, that the experience that people have when they die, you know, you've heard of like the white light and seeing all of your family. It's thought that that may be a big release of DMT in your body. So, um, so the ayahuasca experienced, you you know, there's a lot of physical purging. A lot of people associate that physical purging as emotional purging as well. You know, they're, you're getting rid of the demons, you're getting rid of the trauma, but it's not unique to ayahuasca. It's much more physical and, and visceral. But, you know, one time when I, uh, I had an experience with psilocybin, I felt my body moving. I felt like my, I, I was, um, retching like I was throwing up, but I wasn't throwing up. I didn't feel like I was throwing up, but my body was doing that activity and it very much felt the same way. So it depends on the depth of the experience, but um, that's not unique uh, to ayahuasca. The, the intensity of the fact that you actually throw up is, is you know, typically unique to ayahuasca, but not exclusively. But that processing, it really does feel like, um, depending on the experience, you know, your body is purging 
held emotions. And if you look at, you know, some of the theories of what drives depression and anxiety, a lot of it is repressed emotion. You know, we don't, we're, we're as a society, we're terrible at feeling our emotions and expressing our emotions and processing our emotions. And that well, takes energy, that takes effort. And, and we tend to bury them into our subconscious. Um, and so one of the thoughts is with, with psychedelics is that, it unpacks that. And I've certainly had that feeling as well that like when I, I was on, a, on psilocybin, you know, I felt like a part of my brain that was closed off and not accessible, you know, a very feminine kind of energy came out and started helping me like work through all of these things that I've held on to for my entire life. And so I didn't throw up, but my body actually made the motions like I was going to throw up. And, and just as a, as a quick side note, just uh, if people are interested about why it's believed that psychedelics can be so therapeutic and so effective. It's really thought that there's three kind of interactions that are happening uh, when you ingest a psychedelic. One is there's almost an immediate antidepressant effect, whether it's ketamine or psilocybin or MDMA. As soon as it hits you, most people report a lift in mood. Um, and so it kind of takes you, if you're in a depression or in a funk, it will pull you out of that immediately. Secondly, um, it helps you see old experiences and old traumas more objectively. So you can start to process the emotions and, and move them through your body as well. Um, so you start to process the trauma. It's very similar like to talk therapy, but on a hyper expedited basis, right? Like it just gets right down to the business instead of taking years, you know, your brain is just like forcing you to confront those issues and start processing them. And the third way that psychedelic therapies seem to have such incredible impact is that there's a period of neuroplasticity uh, that happens after you take a psychedelic. Michael Pollan referred to it as like, if you imagine cross-country ski tracks, a fresh dump of snow kind of landing on top of it. So you have a new opportunity to create new paths, quite literally, in your brain. Um, and so when you pair that with psychotherapy, when you have a therapist there with you, you know, using different techniques, you're actually much more able to... Uh, adopt those habits, those changes into your lifestyle, into your brain. And so you have this lasting kind of actual change. It's kind of like, you know, when you take Play-Doh and warm it up with your hands and it becomes much more malleable, that's literally what's happening with your brain. Uh, so you can reshape a lot of things in, in a positive way. And, and so that's kind of what's believed to be happening when you have a psychedelic experience and why these effects are so profound and, and so lasting. Yeah. You mentioned uh, kind of at the point of death, there's this belief that a ton of DMT gets released. Um, one of the questions that uh, somebody sent me on Twitter that I, I know nothing about and found fascinating was this idea of um, basically at the point of death to administer a psychedelic to somebody to almost make it a less painful, uh, I guess, in some weird way, a more enjoyable experience. Is that something that is more on like the fringe and, and kind of a, a one-off idea? Or is that something that is being taken seriously by the scientific community and, and kind of the psychedelic community? I can't speak for everybody. It's not something that I've heard a lot of. Um, personally, there's a lot of interest in using psychedelics as part of palliative care um, because some of the more interesting studies, like the one I mentioned from NYU, it was actually giving psilocybin-assisted therapy to people with terminal cancer uh, who were facing end-of-life distress. And those people reported a significant improvement in, in their anxiety around dying because one of the other experiences that people often have is like a sense of connectedness uh, you know, I've been reading uh, The Immortality Key, which is a book that kind of looks to um, 
you know, psychedelic use in ancient Greece and how that actually translated into early Christianity and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things it talks about was that in ancient Greece, uh, there was a, a ritual called the, the mysteries of Eleusis and all of the great ancient Greek philosophers uh, had this and almost uniformly, everybody who went through the mysteries reported that they no longer feared death because they actually saw that life. Like this was literally just a shell. Your body is just a shell, but your life continues well afterwards. And the people report that experience to this day. Um, so that's where a lot of the interest is. Um, specifically to DMT or other psychedelics right at the kind of moment of death. I haven't heard of that, uh, but Erwin Perlman, who's the gentleman I've been working with for the last 15 years and kind of my meditation and metaphysical practice, uh, metaphysics practice kind of talks about most people when they die actually look very relieved and pleased, right? Like it is actually the moment up to it is actually terrifying, but the actual moment of it is actually quite relieving. At least that that's what he talks about. And that may be in part, triggered by the DMT. Um, but beyond that, I don't know specifically any research that's happening on it. Yeah. It's, it's just fascinating to kind of think through, um, you know, there's the medical, uh, in the, in the legacy sense that you can treat terminal cancer, you know, things like that, but also then there's this mental component to it. And if you can almost make the experience, uh, less acute for somebody, um, you know, there's a lot of benefit to that. Uh, one of the other questions that I got, um, but this is probably the most popular one was all around micro dosing. Um, so maybe just start with like, what is micro dosing? Uh, and then I think from the questions, I was surprised at how many people, uh, at least claim that they micro dose on a daily basis. And so what, what exactly is that? And kind of why would people be doing it on a more frequent basis? Yeah. So when we talk about the research around psychedelics, it's typically using macro or transformational level doses. So if you were to equate it to mushrooms, it'd be like five grams of mushrooms, which is a significant dose of, of magic mushrooms. Micro dosing would be the equivalent of taking a hundred milligrams or 200 milligrams, and it's supposed to be sub perceptual. So you don't really notice it, but you're really treating uh, the psychedelic much more like an antidepressant. You take it on a, a daily basis or a frequent basis to improve mood um, and, and uh, creativity. And um, the challenge with microdosing is that there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of its effectiveness, but there's really no substantive research uh, that's been done on it. So it's really hard to say uh, whether it's effective or not, at least on a scientific basis. From what I've heard, there are some studies that have been going on recently that haven't been published, but they suggest that microdosing is no more effective than placebo. Um, uh, so suggesting that microdosing is not effective, uh, but it, it's really unknown right now. But the whole idea is taking small doses on a frequent basis um, to enhance creativity. And it's what you hear people in Silicon Valley doing and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of people swear by it and, and, and that's great. And if it's working for them, that's fantastic. One of the risks, and, and we didn't really touch upon this uh, when we talk about the risks of psychedelics, because it's typically only a risk if there's you know very frequent high use of, of psychedelics but um drugs like psilocybin they're, they're promiscuous you know they primarily engage the 5-hd2a serotonin receptor which means that's the psychedelic receptor that causes the psychedelic experience or at least it's believed so but they can also uh, engage or agonize the 5-hd2b uh, receptor in the brain which has been associated if it is agonized too much or too frequently with um 
potential cardiac issues, heart valve um, fibrosis and, and issues like that. And so that's one of the concerns around microdosing is that if you're taking frequently, you may be wandering into what's called the 5-HD2B liability. Uh, it's unknown, um, you know, and a lot of people like Paul Stamets have been microdosing for years and years and seem to be okay. So, uh, but it is one of the things you want to be conscious with if you are engaging in a, in a microdosing practice is it's, it's probably... It's, it's probably got a higher risk profile uh, than doing the very occasional high dose uh, experience, just given the frequency of use and, and that potential risk. But I don't know how significant that risk is. Uh, it's just something to keep in mind. Yeah. What's interesting about this is microdosing seems similar to somebody who you know, takes Adderall every day. The difference being that the Adderall almost speeds up the thought process, speeds up the focus and makes somebody more of a uh, kind of I don't know, I call it like a rigid machine, right? Like just, you can just knock out work for hours and hours and hours versus this, which is um, a much more frequent, uh, you know, kind of uh, consumption of it, but it has the opposite effect almost, right? It's like a more creative, slowing down, uh, more laid back type approach. And so, um, you know, if that framework is accurate, uh, it's almost like, well, Adderall is legal through a doctor and, and kind of has a specific effect, it would make sense, I guess, that um, kind of the opposite intended uh, state could be achieved uh, on a daily basis. But it sounds like it, that may not actually even be necessary, right? You could almost just do it periodically um, and, and have some lasting effects there as well, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, you know, your brain, the experience of psychedelics when done properly with therapy is, is that you, you actually have change. You have neurological change you have emotional change and, and it's lasting and it's uh, substantiated um uh but you know comparing microdosing to taking adderall daily you know i don't know enough about adderall to really speak about the experience but um but you know it can be used in that way but probably with different intent and, and different effect and, and you know truthfully you know, there's something about that that appeals to me logically. You know, I've been trying, I have a, a stepson who's uh, 19 years old and, you know, he's, he went to university and um, he was asking what he should study. And I said, the most important two features, the two most important skills in the future are going to be the ability to concentrate because in our digital phone era, the concentration and like attention levels have dropped so much. And the second thing is creativity, you know, math and science and engineering, all of that's going to be done by computers. You know, anything that's logical can be done by computers way better than it can be done by us. Creativity where you have to like jump the gap where there's no logical answer and you have to fill in the gap through creativity. That's going to be the most important skill set in the world. And so to the extent that psychedelics, either microdosing or, you know, transformational doses of it, are going to facilitate that. You know, I see them having a, a significant impact beyond just mental health treatments in the future as well. Absolutely. No, it makes, uh, makes complete sense. Talk to me a little bit about uh, the strategy for uh, field trip is this like set and setting um, type approach. And so for, uh, you know, most people, when they think of psychedelics, they're thinking about the actual thing that is being consumed and then the impact that has on your mental or emotional state. Um, this idea that you guys have around like, well, a big part of the experience is driven by the environment in which you are in um, and what can kind of be done there. Just walk us through like, what is the strategy and kind of why is that so important? Yeah. So when we started with field trip, 
and we started doing the research and we spoke to everybody, the consistent theme we heard is uh, there's going to be no money in the drugs. There's only going to be money and, and a business to be made in the delivery of psychedelic therapies. And, and that kind of resonated with us because we had just spent a couple of years building a whole clinical infrastructure for cannabis. So we're like, okay, well, we're extremely well positioned to do this for for psychedelics. Um, and what we realized is that uh, psychedelics don't fit into conventional medicine. You know, you can't go to your family doctor and expect him or her to administer psilocybin and have you hang out at their office for six or eight hours while you go through a trip, right? They don't have the space, they don't have the staffing, and they're not interested in doing it. So there was, there is going to be a real need for this new um, clinical infrastructure. So that's what we started with. Um, but then we realized that because so much, and, and there's an incredible amount of evidence around this, so much of the therapeutic experience comes down to the set and setting, which refers to the mindset of the person. So what preparation they bring into the psychedelic experience and what their intention is, you know, what do I want to get out of this? Some people may come in and just be like, you know, I spoke with Alex Icon, one of the guys who founded the uh, five minute journal. And he said, I went in and just said, universe, show me what I need to see. Other people will go in and be like, I need to get over the breakup with my boyfriend or something along those lines. So the, the mindset is the set and in, in set in setting. Uh, and the setting is, is actually the space, the physical space. There's evidence to show that if you're in a warm, safe, naturally natural or naturally inspired environment, typically you're going to have better therapeutic outcomes. Um, as opposed to being in a hospital setting with fluorescent lights and white walls. And so as we were building a field trip, knowing that you needed clinical infrastructure, you needed new space, you needed new operations, you needed new protocols to actually make this scalable. We also focused very heavily on the setting as well. So if you go into any of our clinics, we are currently operating in New York, Toronto, Chicago, and LA with plans for many more. Uh, you'll notice that these do not feel like doctor's offices. They feel much more, and I don't like the term, I don't know why, but it feels very spa-like. I think I don't like the term because it kind of diminishes the impact and the importance of what we're doing, but um, it feels that way. It feels very warm. It feels very comfortable, and we've invested heavily in that. And what makes Field Trip uh, really unique is our focus on both aspects of it. We're focused on both developing the drugs. So we are in preclinical stages and we talk about this more with um, FT-104, which is a novel synthetic psychedelic molecule that's actually been derived from known psychedelics, um, as well as we're doing advanced cultivation research on psilocybin producing mushrooms um, on one side of the equation, but we're focused on doing that in parallel with developing the know-how and understanding of what aspects of set and setting matter. You know, We know it's important to feel like you're in a safe, warm, comfortable environment, but we don't know specifically what music matters or what lighting matters or, you know, the chair or how you're sitting or what's on the walls. You know, all of these things can have an impact, but no one's really got objective data on exactly what differences they make. So with field trip health centers that are rolling out, we're focused obviously on delivering care using ketamine-assisted therapy right now, but also collecting the data on what dynamics really affect the outcome. So when we come to market with a, a new product, you know, not only are we going to have best-in-class psilocybin-producing mushrooms or best-in-class approved drug, uh, we're also going to be able to support that experience because if you're doing one without the other, then you leave a lot to chance, right? You know, if you've developed like a, a new, you know, got approval for psilocybin, but the doctors who are administering it are doing it in hospital settings and, and people are having terrible experiences, you got a great drug, but you're not creating the outcomes that you may have hoped for. Uh, and so we didn't want to leave that to risk. We don't think it's the best for therapeutic outcomes. 
And we certainly don't think it's the best for business model either. So we, we took an integrated approach with it. Talk a little bit more about kind of the set aspect of the set and setting. So this whole idea of like the mindset, what do people normally do beforehand to kind of prepare? Um, you, you talked a little bit about kind of like, what are they trying to get out of it? But, but what can they do or what do they do um, to kind of almost condition themselves to be in the best position uh, to kind of have the best experience? Yeah, we actually, we launched an app too called Trip, which is on iOS and, and Android. And that kind of takes you various, through a very simplified process of, of both the preparation as well as the after integration work after you're done a trip. And, and there's cool music and, and, and generative music built in there. But really what you want to do is try and tap into like your inner emotional network. What's going on, you know, um, because most people don't take time to stop and reflect, why am I feeling anxious about this? Or why am I angry about that? Or, you know, anything along those lines. So if you have a, a, an intention, if you have a, a, a known subject that you want to go into, reflecting on it and doing a little bit of the work to unpack the emotions or just recognize the emotions that are around it uh, is important. Or, you know, if you're uh, suffering through depression, you know, just taking some time to breathe and, and open yourself up to just acknowledging that and having compassion for yourself being like, you know, this is a function of a whole bunch of circumstances. I, I'm not to blame, you know, I'm maybe nervous about going in and trying ketamine or psilocybin for the first time. So can I process that nervousness? Can I breathe through it? And can I open myself up to uh, the experience? Because within the context of set and setting, there's this, uh, there's this idea of surrender, which is the more you can let go and just lean into the experience, the more therapeutic it's going to be. Whereas if you're anxious, if you're worried, you know, you don't want to let go of control, you know, which is a lot of people, people, a lot of people don't do drugs because quote unquote, they don't want to give up control. Um, and if you're going to resist the experience, you're not going to have a therapeutic outcome. So preparation and trying to like, let go of the anxiety and lean into the experience can also be very beneficial as well. Yeah. I was reading about FT-104, which is this uh, kind of synthetic compound that you guys are working on. Um, maybe help people understand uh, first the natural uh, psilocybin, um, kind of what the understanding there is, what the importance of a synthetic compound, uh, and then what the advantages of the FT-104 uh, compound specifically is. Yeah, so psilocybin is the active ingredient in mus magic mushrooms. Um, I probably should have clarified that earlier. It's a tryptamine. Um, I don't know specifically what that means in terms of chemical structure. I'm not a scientist by background, and a lot of the <laughs> um, a lot of the the research and a lot of the excitement is around psilocybin, and in, in part because it's a naturally occurring substance. You know, there's a lot of interest in plant based medicine, and even though the clinical trials happening right now are using a synthetic form, so a chemically synthesized form, not something that's extracted from the actual mushroom itself, you know, there's a lot of interest in it because of its natural existence, because the fact that it's been used for thousands of years in traditional cultures, and there's known evidence around it in terms of safety, at least anecdotally, as well as efficacy. Um, there's a lot of excitement there. So that's really between MD, MDMA and psilocybin. Those are the two drugs that have really been the catalyst for the psychedelic renaissance that's happening right now. One of the biggest challenges with psilocybin though, is, as, 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 effective and, and with such great potential as it has is it's a long experience. You know, when you take a large dose of psilocybin, you're, you're going to commit, you know, four, six, eight, 
hours to the experience. It's a long time, which is part of the reason we need new physical spaces to actually do the care and why we're opening up field trip health centers. Um, but you know, that's a big commitment. That's a full day, you know, and that's a lot of therapist time. That's a lot of doctor time. It makes it incredibly expensive. If you talk to people within the psychedelic industry and the community, one of the big challenges is access because it's so expensive, not so expensive, but it's, it is expensive to go for a professionally, uh, delivered psychedelic experience because it takes a lot of professional time and space to actually go through the experience. So, you know, when we were looking at the opportunities in this emerging industry, we realized that that time frame makes it challenging to make this scalable. You know, can you shrink the time frame but not um, diminish or not significantly diminish the experience and the therapeutic outcomes? Uh, and if you can find that right balance with shorter time frames but similar efficacy, you know, you've got a really successful product. And so. Uh, so FT-104 was derived from known psychedelic compounds um, that engage the same receptor, the 5-HT2A receptor in the brain, uh, but was specifically designed so it's an experience in about two hours. You know, you have peak experience and um, um, most of it processed and out of your bloodstream within about two hours as opposed to 4, 6, 8 or whatever for psilocybin. And what that does is, and it has the same potency in the brain and engages that 5-HT2 receptor with the same binding capacity roughly as, as psilocybin. Uh, so you have an experience that's going to be as intense as potent, but can be done in a morning instead of an entire day. So it makes it more accessible for people who can do this in half a day potentially as, as a therapeutic option and you don't need as much time. Um, and, and that's why we focused on FT104, but chemically, you know, um, we know it engages the right receptors. There are a lot of known tryptamines out there. Um, and, uh, and so, um, that engage that receptor. And, and so, you know, it's, it's been derived along that basis from that knowledge that tryptamines engage, um, the 5-HT2 receptor. And, and so we're quite excited about it. We're still in preclinical stages, but uh, we have a good basis to know that it is safe and efficacious. And, and so we expect to be able to move through the uh, approval process relatively expediently. What does that approval process look like? It's a long one and it's an expensive one. So um, the, the FDA clinical trials typically uh, are three phases, phase one, phase two, phase three. Phase one is really uh, establishing that it's safe to administer in humans. Um, phase two is really starting to do dose finding um, to figure out how much you're going to be administering to people for the therapeutic effect. And then phase three is a much broader uh, study with more people showing that it actually works in the intended way um, with, the, with the given doses. And then there's often phase four uh, and beyond. And, and, you know, it typically takes compass pathways is right now um, in phase 2B, uh, and they've been at it for four or five years. Uh, MAPS has been at this for close to 30 years, and they're in phase three, but that's that's really the exception, not the norm, given that they were the ones who were really building the evidence to get the FDA comfortable with the idea of doing psychedelics. Um, uh, but yeah, so if, you know, Compass Pathways expects approval sometime around 2025, 2026, I think based on their disclosure. So they're, they're in it for 10 years and, and hundreds of millions of dollars because um, it's expensive and it takes a long time. And, you know, the FDA approval process is rigorous as it should be. Um, you know, this is medicine and, and we need to show efficacy and safety. But it's also one of the reasons that we've been big supporters of Measure 109, which is you know, psychedelics from a drug development and investment perspective, psychedelics are, are 
good investments if you think about it, because we know most psychedelics have been used anecdotally for many, many years. We know them to be relatively safe. We know them to be relatively effective. So you've kind of de-risked two of the biggest risks in drug development of does it work and is it safe? Well, we kind of know that already. So to some extent, we're doing these clinical trials, knowing the outcome by and large because of all the history that's been out there. Absolutely. One of the things that's really interesting to me is uh, you described having centers uh, in the United States, uh, these health centers. Um, and we obviously just saw Oregon uh, kind of decriminalize a lot of uh, what most people consider hard drugs or illicit drugs, uh, but also legalize the use of uh, psilocybin. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about the difference there between decriminalizing this stuff versus legalizing the use case um, and kind of how you guys view those two pathways and like is one better than the other uh, or are you agnostic to that we're not agnostic to it we definitely support legalization and regulation uh, as opposed to decriminalization decriminalization don't get me wrong is still a step in the right direction you know for most drugs uh, that are not harmful uh, like cannabis and, and lsd and psilocybin by and large i mean like, you know, we talked about the harm profile just being low they're not harmless but um you know, it, it just doesn't make sense to put people in prison. Uh, philosophically, morally, economically, it, it just is, is a, seems to have been a bad decision to conduct this war on drugs. So we support decriminalization, but decriminalization creates new risks, right? Because most people don't distinguish between legalization and decriminalization. They think, oh, it's been decriminalized, it's now legal. That's not true. It just means that enforcement in, in that particular jurisdiction around possession has been brought down to the lowest levels and maybe a fine or not enforced at all, but it doesn't make it legal. Um, more importantly, though, it means that you probably have a lot of people thinking it's legal, going out and accessing it, buying supply from who knows what, you know, you, you can't confirm the, 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 the purity or anything along those lines. So it creates a whole bunch of risks. And, you know, I think Rick Doblin said it best that the most important thing we can do as part of the psychedelic industry right now is not fuck it up. Right. And so when people go out and start self-dosing and self-administering, buying supply from who knows where you have the risk of bad outcomes, you have the risk of bad trips or, or bad behavior, and that can really set it back. So, you know, decriminalization is good because you don't want to be putting people in prison for it. It's expensive and, and it makes typically people worse, not better when they, when they leave after a prison experience. Um, but legalization, making sure that there's safe access, uh, controlled supply, tested supply. So people know what they're taking. They know the purity, they know the dosage, they know they have the right therapeutic support around it just makes a lot more sense to us, you know, at least at these early stages to show that we can integrate psychedelics back into our society in a thoughtful way without creating many unintended consequences. Maybe once we've done that, it makes sense to enable broader access. I, I don't know we'll, we'll see, but doing a legalized regulated framework exactly like proposed in, or now approved in Oregon again is smart it, it ensures access it ensures that people who want it can get it but the people who are administering it still have to ask the right questions because you know if you if you do have schizophrenia taking a psychedelic is probably not a wise idea um, and so you have people responsible for asking the right questions and, and really being a bit of a gating uh, step to make sure that uh, people who shouldn't be accessing it aren't and that you know they're responsible for making sure people have good and safe experiences as well and, and I think that's definitely the right approach. Absolutely. If somebody is in the United States, you know, California, uh, New York, Texas, just pick a state uh, mm -hmm. and they say, look, I want to 
start down the path of the experience with psychedelics, what's legally available to them today, right? So Oregon is kind of an outlier, but can somebody walk into a field trip health center and take ketamine, MDMA, uh, you know, something else? Uh, is it something where they need a, uh, a doctor's subscription? Like just how does that work in terms of what's legally available? Yeah, right now, the only legally prescribable psychedelic outside of clinical trials, you know, generally available is ketamine. Um, It was approved by the FDA actually in the 1970s. It's been around for a long time. It's known to be very safe uh, by and large. If if your kid breaks a a bone and you take them to the emergency room, if the doctor is going to prescribe something to help manage the pain, especially if they have to reset the bone or something along those lines, it's ketamine that's often prescribed. So it is that kind of safe and and known commodity. Um, So ketamine is the only thing that's currently prescribable. MDMA and psilocybin are still scheduled uh, in the US. um, And so they're not accessible, at least legally speaking. If you come into a field trip health center, it does depend on the jurisdiction. So in some states, it's more restrictive and we could only prescribe and administer to people who have, say, treatment-resistant depression. Um, in other states, you know, the bar may be lower. There still be some sort of medical need uh, that has to exist right now. So it could be as simple as dysthymia or adjustment disorder, which basically means I'm stuck in a rut, something that most people probably ordinarily would go see a therapist for or something along those lines. Um, You know, in some states we can prescribe and administer for that. In other states we can't, but there's always got to be some sort of medical need right now. If you just want to come in um, to go for a trip, typically that's not enabled or or permitted in most states. Um, But, you know, by and large, people who are coming in typically have a need. You can usually establish some degree of medical need in our centers. And what will happen is depending on the need, whether you have treatment resistant depression or or something sort of less significant or impactful, um, there'll be a treatment program developed. So the typical treatment program for someone with depression uh, is six ketamine sessions with six exploratory therapy sessions. So back to back uh, over the course of a few weeks uh, with three integration sessions interspersed kind of thing. And that's what it typically looked like. But if you're coming in for dysthymia or adjustment disorder, or just having a hard time with life these days, you know, it'd probably just be two ketamine sessions with exploratory therapy and, and integration work afterwards. Got it. It, You guys are obviously not the only player in the space. Um, It seems like everyone that I've come across is taking very different approaches, right? And some of that's because they're actually solving for different things. Some of them are more uh, kind of the compound and drug focused. Uh, Some of them are more the physical space and and kind of the setting. Uh, You guys are taking kind of this hybrid approach. Um, Talk a little bit about just how you see who the other large players are in the space and, and kind of your view on what they're doing. Sure. So obviously there's Field Trip Health, which we're on the Canadian Securities Exchange and publicly listed right now. Uh, the biggest player in the industry is Compass Pathways. They recently went public on the NASDAQ. Uh, they are in phase 2B of FDA-approved clinical trials for psilocybin for the treatment of treatment-resistant depression. They are taking a very um, pharmaceutical biotech approach uh, to psychedelics, just focused on the drug. They're not focused on the set and setting uh, or anything along those lines. Uh, they really want to just be a, a pharmaceutical company within this context. At least that's the path they're taking you know i've spoken at length with some of the founders and and they're all you know really great people really thoughtful people and see 
the broader context of psych the psychedelic industry, but they're focused on taking the specific path right now because I think it's the most expeditious and, and appropriate way. Um, they, they are the biggest player. The biggest investor in uh, Compass Pathways is a company called Atai Life Sciences. Uh, they're essentially a holding company or, or a VC, depending on how you want to look at it. They own or have invested in a number of different uh, pharmaceutical companies, early stage pharmaceutical companies that are developing different psychedelics or mental health treatments. It's not always psychedelics within Atai Life Sciences, but mental health more broadly. Um, you know, very credible players as well. Not surprising, they were instrumental to the creation of Compass Pathways, and, and so they have very similar outlooks and, and operations. Uh, those are the two biggest players. Uh, there is a company called uh, Mind Medicine, uh, which is on the NEO exchange in Canada. Uh, they just announced an intention to list on the NASDAQ. Um, they started off with an interesting approach. They were moving forward with clinical trials with a molecule called 18MC, which is similar to LSD, but it doesn't cause the trip. And that creates actually some philosophical discussions within the community of, do you need the trip? Do you need that psychedelic experience to actually have the therapeutic outcomes or can it be achieved just on a neurochemical basis? And the 18MC, they're advancing uh, for the treatment of opioid addiction uh, and it doesn't have the trip. It, it's really a classic pharmaceutical product in that respect. But they're also doing work with LSD and microdosing and a, uh, attention deficit disorder in adults. Um, so they are progressing as well. There's a number of other smaller companies out there, um, yeah, most focused on doing drug development. So pursuing the clinical path uh, and just that side of the equation. I think that's what makes Field Trip really unique is, is the integrated approach that we're taking because we think both elements are so critically important to the therapeutic outcomes that you can't leave the other one just a chance. Uh, and so that's what we've taken the path that we've taken. Got it. And how do you guys see this developing, right? So if we kind of zoom out from an industry standpoint, is this something where uh, what just happened in Oregon is kind of a, a broaching of um, what will happen on every single state level in the United States? You'll eventually get FDA approvals. This will look like the cannabis industry, but just be on a, a larger scale, the same size scale. Like, how, how does this kind of play out in terms of um, what people can expect moving forward from an industry level? Yeah, and, and I should know, I mean, we've, we've drawn the parallels between cannabis and psychedelics quite a bit. And there are some parallels, certainly. I mean, obviously, there's stigmatized medicine, and, and they're similar in that um, you need a new infrastructure to really deliver this. The existing medical infrastructure is not well suited to it. What does distinguish psychedelics from cannabis is cannabis, by and large, is an industry for itself. You know, there's people who use cannabis, there's people who will start to use cannabis, but, you know, it, it's not displacing anything except maybe some, some alcohol uh, consumption. Psychedelics, on the other hand, are a much larger potential from an industry perspective, because when you look at the evidence, when you see that MDMA can effectively cure PTSD, when you can see that psilocybin can effectively cure depression for months or years at a time, um, psilocybin therapy and MDMA therapy, you know, what you're talking about is a fundamental displacement of most approaches to mental health. It's a much bigger opportunity than, than just cannabis in terms of business potential. Um, what I see happening over the next few years is, is pretty much the path that we're already on, you know, Oregon was the only state to approve um, access to psilocybin therapies this year, but California had efforts underway that were really derailed by the, the, the pandemic. Um, 
you can expect California to be at it again. You can expect Colorado to have a ballot initiative in two years, New York State potentially. There are going to be a number of states that look to roll out these programs in, in a wellness kind of approach, very similar to Oregon. We really think Oregon has set the foundation for what this is going to look like. And I think that continues. And I think that continues in parallel with the FDA process, because I think you're going to see both the medical need uh, with synthetic products and insurance coverage, and you're going to see the more wellness need for natural products and, and broader access for people who don't necessarily have clinical diagnoses with mental health conditions, but see the benefit of accessing psychedelic therapies, you know, and, and more broadly and philosophically. And what excites me about the psychedelic renaissance that's happening right now is that I think it really changes the conversation around mental and emotional health. You know, for me, the psychedelic drugs are not the important aspect of it. Uh, the important aspect of it is that I think the conversation around psychedelics is going to make mental and emotional health proactive. We're going to start thinking about our mental health like we think about our physical fitness. We all know we should go to the gym. No one's going to argue that going to the gym is good for you. We don't always do it, but we know that. Um, you know, could you imagine going to the gym only once you've broken your ankle or pulled a muscle? Like that's not, it doesn't make sense. And, and I think we need to start thinking about our mental and emotional health that way. And I think psychedelics are going to be the platform where people are going to be much more proactive about ensuring their mental health is, is well established and, and they're constantly working on it, just like we're constantly working on our physical fitness. And that's really what excites me. Um, and so I think psychedelics are, are really just the catalyst for a much broader conversation around all of this kind of stuff. And so there's going to be incredible opportunities within psychedelics and psychedelic drug development and, and cultivation of psilocybin and the peyote and, and all the natural products as well. Uh, and I think they'll operate very nicely in tandem and in parallel, much like you see adult use cannabis and, and medical cannabis operating in parallel. They're, they're set up you know, so that there's broad access, but people have different paths to get there. Absolutely. It's fascinating to me uh, as I kind of went down this uh, this rabbit hole, if you will, and you were kind enough to send me a bunch of uh, information to, uh, to kind of read up on. Where would you suggest other people who are listening to this and uh, interested and uh, want to learn more? Where can they go? Or is there a book? Is there um, specific resources that you say like this is the best place to kind of get started on, on the educational side? Yeah, I always give the nod, and, and you won't be surprised by this, to Michael Pollan. Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. It is a very thoughtful, great read about the history of psychedelics, the, the modern movements. You know, it gives you a good flavor of what the experiences are like. It's it's a really good overview of, of everything that's going on. Um, I'm also a big fan of the Harvard Psychedelic Club. If you like history, if you like knowing the narrative of the experience, which was written by Don Latin, uh, it talks about the experience with Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, who became Ram Dass, and a lot of the seminal figures that are still present today, um, at least in the story, even though Timothy Leary is dead, um, because you know we have to learn from our past experiences and the mistakes that were made along the way to make sure that we don't create similar circumstances. Those are two great, great resources. Um, Maps, you know, has a newsletter uh, and tons of information as well. That's a, that's a great resource. Those are the typically the places I, I point people, but, you know, it's, it's growing so quickly um, uh, that, uh, you know, there's things popping up. If people are interested from an investment perspective, uh, there's resources like Psychedelic Finance or Psilocybin Alpha that are tracking the, the publicly listed companies right now. They're, they're great resources as well. Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head beyond that, but I'm sure other things will come up. You said that you guys have a podcast. What, what do you talk about on there? 
Yeah, so it's called Field Tripping, Epic Trips, and Psychedelics. Uh, and really, my goal is to mainstream the conversation. So have people talk about their psychedelic experiences, what it meant to them, and how it changed the course of their life. So we've had people like Dr. Andrew Weil on. We've had Director X. We had Alex Icon. We've had really incredible people come on and talk about how psychedelics has, has really altered the course of their lives in, in a positive way. And talking about their experiences and um and uh, we also had Humble the Poet, whose episode, you know, I've had many people reach out to me, talk about how it brought them to tears because it was so emotional and it's resonated with them so much. Because one of the things, going back to my comments about psychedelics being the platform that really changes the conversation about a mental and emotional health, one of the most important things is that we actually start talking about our emotions and, and our, our mental health. And, and so it's a platform for people to talk about that. And we kind of go into their experiences and, and what, you know, it showed for them. And having done a lot of work myself on exploration and, and metaphysics, you know, I try where I can to offer insights saying like, Oh, had you ever considered that this may be something that that psychedelic experience was showing you? Uh, and uh, so that, yeah, that's, that's the podcast. If you're interested in, um, field trip health centers, you know, the, the website is fieldtriphealth.com. If you're interested from an investment perspective, we have a website, our corporate website, which is meetfieldtrip.com. Um, and then if you're interested in our app trip, you can always go to tripapp.co, uh, which is where you can download that. And that was really designed for anybody doing consciousness expansion work, helping them set intentions, providing them with a really impactful uh, soundscapes and music to support the experience and, and then doing the integration work afterwards, which is one, something we haven't talked about much, but that's where most people will say the real magic in psychedelics happen. It's like you have the psychedelic experience, but what you take from that experience and how you integrate that into your lives is where the real sustained meaningful change happens. And, and so uh, trip gives you a fairly simplified way to start doing that integration work, reflect on the experience and trying to understand what it means so you can actually change, you know, your habits, your behavior, your outlook, all of these kind of things as well. I love it. Before we wrap up, I ask everyone the same two questions and then you'll get a chance to ask me one question. Uh, the first question is, what is the most important book you've ever read? I feel like you may have already answered that, but any other books that you want to, uh, to add in there? Yeah, uh, Michael Pollan's book is great, but it's not the most important book I've ever read. I think the two most impactful books I've read, um, actually, I'm going to say three because I always flip back and forth. Tom Robbins is my favorite author. If you listen to the podcast, you'll hear me quote him all the time. And it's not Tony Robbins, it's Tom Robbins. People get that confused. And it's not Tim Robbins either. It's uh, Tom Robbins. Um, he wrote, most people have heard of even cowgirls get the blues, but that's not the book I'm going to reference jitterbug perfume or still life with woodpecker, um, are just fascinating. They're, they're, you know, his, his prose is the most eloquent I've ever read, uh, and his philosophy and his creativity are just mind blowing and they inspire me every time. I remember reading still life with woodpecker one night, um, sitting up in bed after reading a particular passage and just being like, that is the most insightful, thoughtful, inspiring thing I've ever read. And it actually inspired me to do something stupid in a good way, but uh, that's how impactful it was. Um, so Jitterbug Perfume and Still Life with Woodpecker. And then also uh, there's a book, uh, it's probably 20 years old now called The Rebel Cell, Why the Counterculture Can't Be Jammed. That just takes like a really honest approach about capitalism. It's um, 
benefits and its limitations. And, and it was written as a response to Naomi Klein's No Logo, um, I think, uh, which was a really, I think, impactful book back in the day uh, in the anti-capitalist movement. And it was just a response to that. And it's so thoughtful and, and I think well-grounded that I always go back to it and just remind myself about how to think about things from a more logical and intuitive perspective as opposed to a black and white perspective. Those are, those are the two books that I would recommend. Those are great suggestions. Uh, the second question is more fun. Uh, yeah. Aliens, are you yeah. a believer or a non-believer? Uh, I'm a believer that there is life in this universe. You, you can't look at the size and scale and everything that's going on. In fact, I took a course in university called Life in Other Worlds, and I thought the uh, professor did a good job of answering that question. He said, is there life on other worlds? In a word, yes. In two words, yes, probably. And then he kind of strung it out. And it's like, it's true. You know, it's, it's hard to believe that there's all that space, all that potential, and, and we're the only planet with, with life on it. So, so yes, I'm a believer. Whether they've come to visit us or not, uh, I'm a little bit more skeptical. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm right there with you on all of that. And uh, I wish I had a class in college that would have uh, would have put me down that rabbit hole. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. You could ask me one question to uh, wrap this up. What do you got for me? All right. Well, I mean, it's going to be straight up. Have you ever tried psychedelics? If so, what was the experience? And if not, why not? Yeah. I, so no, uh, and more so just a lack of uh, access and education probably, right? Like right. a thing of just... Um, the whole idea of like, if I want to get drunk right now, like I know exactly where to go, right? Like go right to the liquor store, go right to buy some beer, right? And, and it's a yeah. pretty easy uh, exercise of uh, open up whatever the bottle or can is and, and drink. Yeah. Um, and and uh, so I think that that's probably been like the biggest barrier. Uh, and the second thing also is like, I don't want to say it's misinformation, but definitely this idea uh, or maybe like the stigmatization of like, oh, that's like for this group of people that's kind of like on the fringes of society. Um, and with most things, what you realize is like, one, no, that's not true. Two, uh, everything seems scary or different uh, if you don't know anything about it, right? You know, yeah. I, I deal with that like on the Bitcoin side all the time. People are like, oh, that, that's for drug dealers and, you know, terrorists. And then you <laughs> learn about it, you're like, oh, maybe not, right? And so yeah. I, I think that that's probably the, and I'm assuming for most people listening, like that's the two biggest barriers, right? It's like, what is this stuff? How does it work? Why is it important? Um, you know, what am I putting in my body? All that kind of stuff. Uh, and then two is just an access thing, right? And I think what you yeah. guys are doing from like the health center standpoint um, just drastically reduces that barrier. Uh, and you could easily see that being an inflection point from an adoption uh, perspective. Totally makes sense. And in part, like that's, that's the reason for the podcast is when you hear of all of these incredibly successful people and also a nod to Donna Carey, who uh, has a documentary on, on Netflix called um, Have a Good Trip, uh, where he talks to like incredibly famous people about their psychedelic experiences, really just trying to mainstream it. So it's not people don't think about it as like, oh, it's the people out there on the fringes. It's, you know, very successful, very impactful, very normal people who, who have these experiences. And then, yeah, on the access side, certainly what's, you know, Canada is a bit of a liberal haven and it's kind of nice, especially given my philosophical and political leanings. But back in 2018, beyond the fact that uh, we learned about uh, Michael Pollan's book and we, you know, maps had been given breakthrough designation and really what inspired us, the other piece was that we got alerted to the fact that in Canada, there's now probably 50 uh, online stores openly selling psilocybin producing mushrooms. And interestingly, as far as I know, only one has been shut down. 
and it wasn't shut down by you know the the police raiding it. It was shut down because Health Canada sent a polite letter saying you're selling an unauthorized medicine for treatment of you know conditions that's not authorized. You know that, and that's what it was. And so, you know, in Canada, even though it's still very much illicit and illegal. Uh, accessing supply has become much easier uh, and it's not dark web you know this is www kind of stuff and uh, and uh, and so yeah you know that kind of access i think has helped mainstream it quite a bit in urban centers as well canadians are so much nicer than americans americans <laughs> would have sent the swat team with machine guns and you know you would have thought that a murder was happening and canadians send the letters so, <laughs> that, uh, that that's exactly not, right that does not surprise me one one uh, one bit at all uh listen ronan i really appreciate you doing this this is uh fantastic i've learned a ton uh both in preparation for this and then obviously in this conversation um you mentioned a couple of websites where people can go find out more about a uh, field trip where can they find you on the internet if they've got questions or kind of want to talk to you more about some of this stuff. Yeah, Twitter. Uh, it's Ronan D, as in David Levy, L-E-V-Y is my Twitter handle. Um, Instagram's the same thing. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, Facebook, I don't use very much anymore. So probably Twitter and LinkedIn are, are the best places to find me. Uh, Field Trip, if you want to follow us, it's at Field Trip Health on Twitter and Instagram as well. And the websites, again, are meetfieldtrip.com for our corporate and IR sites, uh, fieldtriphealth.com, which is for our Field Trip Health Centers, and tripapp.co if you're interested in the app trip. Awesome, man. Well, listen, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, we absolutely are going to have to do this again. And uh, hopefully after I uh, make my way to Canada or somewhere else, and then we can uh, we can talk a little bit more in depth. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say that uh, the, the pitch for like all the online stores would only have enhanced things for a lot of people had Donald Trump won the election. But I think a lot of people are a little bit sated these days with at least it looking like Joe Biden will be the next president. So uh, that that's good news, at least for the population of the U.S. Uh, who, who were terrified by the alternative outcome. <laughs> absolutely. All right, sir. Thank you so much. We'll do it again in the future. And my pleasure. Thanks for having me.